0: Welcome back to The Pyjama Interviews. I'm your host, Michelle Irving, and I am thrilled to be with you here again. This podcast is for intelligent, creative women talented women who also live with chronic illness and are looking to find a way through. Today's episode was recorded live and I'm thrilled to share with you a beautiful, powerful conversation with two of our guests. Stay tuned at the end. We are currently open for anyone who wants to join us for Queen of the Underworld and you'll find all of the details in the show notes and at the end of this podcast to join us. So let's dive in. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. One of the things that I know personally is that the emotional uncertainty of living with chronic illness is complex, and it comes up in such strange ways. It comes up in diagnosis and in treatment, but the longer you live with the chronic illness, the more your world can feel like it shrinks a little in this sense of, limbo where I'm going or how I'm going to navigate this. So I've specifically chosen Chris and Tanya to come have this conversation with us. And here's the reason why. Firstly, Tanya, I've known for a few years now, and I've watched her start to recover some of her physical capacity. And she'll talk a little bit about her health conditions. But I've also watched her you know, foray out into the risk of being an entrepreneur and what has then bloomed in her life, quite astonishingly for her and some of us as well since taking that move. Chris is with me, and Chris is in our current Queen of the Underworld program. And it has been a very rich discussion with Chris. And I'm looking forward to her sharing some of her career experiences and really the wealth of wisdom she has in her maturity and her maturity in her feminine, as well as what has been reflected as she's come into some of the work of reflecting on the story of illness that she inherited. So welcome. Chris and welcome Tanya thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you
2: <laughs> it's great to be here
0: beautiful Tanya I might just start with you I'm wondering if you will share with us as I always ask what your health experience currently is and anything else you want us to know so that we get it on the table and we're all spoonies in the room together
1: sure thank you Michelle and lovely to be doing this with you, Chris. So my name is Tanya Demoris, and about five and a half years ago I actually developed a condition called central sensitization that occurred from actually a neck manipulation. So I developed my condition very suddenly and very severely within half an hour of having the neck condition and that caused um, that caused chronic fatigue. So Central sensitization is the condition of the brain and the central nervous system affects every single nerve in your body. So in the beginning, like many of us with invisible illnesses, no one knew how to treat me, no one knew what was wrong. I was treated for whiplash, I had MRIs, CAT scans, so I was driven by ambulance to the Alfred So nothing was picked up but I knew something was seriously wrong and those that spent a lot of time with me beforehand and afterwards knew something was definitely, definitely wrong. So in that time I've had a diagnosis and I've gone through treatment, so very unconventional treatment without medication. So my treatment from my team, my medical team, um, involved yoga, meditation, lifestyle changes and also working with Michelle. So I worked on Michelle with what I felt was a really important aspect of my journey was dealing with all the emotional stuff because of course my life completely changed. So in the last five years quite miraculously um, I'm pretty much pain-free. I have very few symptoms, about 90% I guess recovered so I don't hardly ever suffer from uh, chronic fatigue anymore and um, I'm doing really well and in that journey I've learnt a lot and it's been difficult and rewarding at the same time.
0: And it's been a deep journey, Tanya, as well. Like this, this didn't just go away with quick ease. This was a very long, deep journey in that five years.
1: Yeah, it was the it was without question the hardest thing I ever went through. I actually had open heart surgery at twenty four. I was born with a heart condition and it was picked up very late, and I had an emergency um, surgery, and that's pretty intense. But going through this is uh, so much harder. It was open heart surgery was easy compared to this. So very big, very life changing. Journey.
0: Gorgeous. And thanks so much for sharing that with us. And Chris, I'm now going to um, ask you to share with us about you and your health experience and conditions
2: as well. Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Hello, everybody. I'm Chris. I've been living with um, severe active rheumatoid arthritis for this is my 36th year. So I've just turned 59 and I was diagnosed at uh, 23. Um, it's a family disease and my first experience of it, I remember really clearly being in an exam at the Alfred Hospital when I was a student nurse um, and my fingers were killing me and I couldn't grip the pen properly and I remember thinking, God, I hope I'm not getting what Nana's got. Mm. And um, I kept going. Um, at the end of my staffing year of nursing, I was exhausted. I was burnt out anyway. And I decided, because I had an academic father and a director of nursing mother, that I needed to go to university. I was the eldest child. I was expected to go to university and I hadn't. And I took myself off to Monash to do a science degree, um, which turned out to be the best thing I could ever have done. So I was diagnosed during my first year exams at the end of that first year after being told by the GP that was all in my head and to go back to work and you know having MRIs and my disease was rotating around my body so one week I'd have this really inflamed foot and then later it'd be my back and I was incontinent and I had MRIs and then it'd be my hands and it was awful and by that time I'd been in the biomedical library a fair bit and when I walked in to see my new young rheumatologist who'd just come back from finishing his training at the Mayo Clinic. And he asked me what I did. And he looked at me and he said, you know what you've got, tell me. And um, and that was it. I'm still seeing Stephen after 35 years. Wow. I keep telling me he's not allowed to retire. Rheumatoid's probably the least sexy autoimmune disease you can get, I think. People think it's an old person's disease and it's not. The peak age of onset is between 20 and 40 and it's usually women. Um, I've had I've lost count of how many surgeries I've had. It would be round the 35 mark. I've got multiple joint replacements. I've got wrists that don't bend. But through that, I've, I'm retired now, but I've navigated a working life and actually found myself in a position I never thought I would be in. And that is, um, yeah. married and parenting, which is pretty darn good. But you do certainly have a smaller world. And I do find that physically I have been for a long time on a, declining trajectory and now I'm starting to get um, secondary autoimmune diseases like thyroid problems and and other things that are arising because of my physical state.
0: Yeah and I think what's very interesting to me Chris that you've had I've learned so much about you in the last six months too and part (laughs) of your experience and one of the things that we've talked about is this full career like this was not a small career that you went into and I'm just wondering yeah, from your perspective, before you came into Queen of the Underworld, you were mm. moving into retirement and your question was, what am I going to do? And I'm just sort of curious if you want to sort of share just where you were at yeah. um, in that transition.
2: Yeah, I, I stopped working a couple of years ago. I had eight surgeries in four years and I just didn't pick up at the end and all, all the joy had gone out of work for me. And I, I was leading a research team and um, we had A lot of money in grants. I had a number of postdocs, and I was supposed to be working two days a week. But as with most academic type jobs, they eat up as much of your life as you're prepared to give, and and then all the rest of it if they can. And um, I decided to stop. And it's taken me a long time to physically, I think, get to a phase where I really feel like I want to get back out in the world again. And then of course COVID's come along in the middle of that too, but. have this real desire to find something useful that I can do where I can give what I can give and not go into overdrive as I used to do and give because I had to and then keep giving at great cost to myself and my family. So Queen of the Underworld has really helped me in that space to um, be more comfortable where I'm at and take away that Pressure. I really felt at the beginning of the course that I needed to find something I really want to do. And at the moment I'm just feeling much more comfortable just spending some time on me instead of everybody else and just exploring what might be good to do and not feeling like I have to rush into it either.
0: Which is and good. I'd like to catch this and I'd like to catch with Tanya because it is so mm. common. Yeah. This push, I talk about it a lot (laughs) and it's important to talk about. So, in the culture we live in, it's about, it's it's around push. People are working during COVID. What we know is that that is bleeding um, into what used to be private time as well. There's an ongoing, you can't actually get out and do things, even if you're living with chronic illness. Other people leaving the house is not happening. Like, so even that quiet time has gone. Yeah. And I think one of the things about that is that, we get conditioned because people haven't seen our private world and the quietness that we live in, we get used to pushing when we're on, pushing when we're out in the world. And what that does is actually use up all of our excess energy. So we're moving into performing wellness Mm. rather than actually honouring where we're at. And I'm just wondering what that has been like where you found that in yourselves and then what the transition's been because I know Tanya this has occurred for you working for yourself there has been a transition from the push you were used to like how do you run a business without push this is weird so would you like to talk about that first perhaps Tanya?
1: Yeah sure so I was pretty, like incredibly unwell when you know it at a stage I kind of pushed on living a life of a normal person because I wasn't diagnosed. Everybody else around you expects you to be in a certain way and then I got to the point where, you know, I remember I went back to home it crazily doing building design and drafting architectural, the accelerated course, which was crazy. It was 35-hour contact a week and 20. It's the most intense course you can do. Um, And then I got to the point where I just couldn't, you know, I'd be struggling into the course. It was very contact-based and I wasn't diagnosed, so I wasn't getting the support. So I really crashed. I was diagnosed that Christmas, you know, after handing in my last assignment. And then I had to learn myself boundaries you know they're just really really important not only with myself but in every single aspect of my life with my relationships with how I ran my household with everything so and I had a really good rheumatologist in the beginning and also I had a GP that was monitoring my diet that worked in and so what was said to me don't push yourself. So if you get to the point where you really feel like you have to push yourself, you can't because the first year of going through treatment, especially with chronic fatigue, is really vital that you you just take stress away and you just kind of go through the processes. And there, there is treatment for chronic fatigue and central sensitization. It varies. You have to find your own path with it, but there is with work I had obviously I didn't have any money so you know um, it was you know you can't be at a lower point than that you know there's no help with the government for disability because you haven't been sick for three years you don't have a illness that fits into the cap so it was just really horrific I actually fell into my business through someone I used to work for who started their own I guess sort of social fair trade enterprise and and then she said oh you know do you want to sell some of my things you know and I said okay and she was really supportive so she was 20 years older than me and she was working four times as much as me so I started just doing kind of markets and events and stuff like that so I could choose when I worked. So I might do say Saturday and then I might take a rest the weekend after and then gradually start to build it up. Having my own business was perfect for me because I could choose when I wanted to work. And so in the beginning it was kind of the first year of doing it was a slow burn. But I had a really good team. I had support around me in terms of I want a hackathon, so I had a else in the incubator program at RMIT Activator and also joined a pilot program for the Vic government and actually graduated on Tuesday so I had a lot of support with them saying okay do this do that do that and I think I'm naturally quite entrepreneurial because I was a forever student studying architecture building design photography I had a really strong retail background I worked in Maya while I was a student so I kind of knew retail and then I stuck really true to my values. So my values was not so much about the money. It was more about doing this right, you know. It was about the people that make it, honouring my customers, you know, to give them a really beautiful product that they'd love, giving incredible customer service to them and doing right with whoever I was working with. So that's how it kind of grew. And then there was... Incredible support for the business. So, I've watched a few other startups, but yeah, this is really, yeah, it's growing and it's been a great model. But in terms of what you sort of mentioned, Michelle, about if you work from home and if you work for yourself, how do you set boundaries? Because I work here on my yeah. couch and I know at times because I'm a creative person, I'd be in the zone building my website or Christmas last year was crazy. I found it hard to switch off. Um, I think what you need to do is just kind of set boundaries. So the next two days are quiet days for me. I'm not doing anything major. also work with different people to help me streamline things. Like I do all my social media for two hours for the week and that kind of thing. So it was a lot of just trial and error and just being committed to doing that and having the right people around me. So you absolutely need to put yourself first.
0: So one of the things I've noticed for you, Tanya, is firstly, there was all this financial support that you had no idea about. And you got into the RMIT incubator, there were grants like this was, if if you'd set out to start a business, like that's not going to be obvious. But for you, because you fell into it, there was this financial support. And I think. What that has revealed to me, it's my own experience and it's what I also watch with women in terms of meaningful work and the spoony entrepreneurship or the spoony job is that There are places, there are ways for it to unfold in a way that works for you. And the other thing I've watched you do is you have built this business slowly. So your health is now at a much stronger capacity than it was three years ago. But three years ago, you were doing it gently, slowly, and you were very strategic about what you took on as a task and what bit you bit off to chew at any time. And that's something that... It comes from an inner knowing, but it's also something we can learn. And, Chris, I want to bring you in on this because just today we had Queen of the Underworld this morning, Wednesday's Queen of the Underworld, and Chris was sharing about what happened when she knew that part-time in the academic world was the only way for her to go. And I'm wondering if you would share
2: that story again. (laughs) When I got my dream job. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, which I'd mucked up. So I'd I've, I've made it to associate professor in my mid-30s, which I was quite proud of, and um, because I just got married and Ian and I were trying to have a baby, which was difficult on my drugs, so I had to modify my drug treatment um, majorly, and it was pretty hard. I was headhunted for an associate professor's job between a local university and a local big private Catholic hospital. So I took it on, but part-time, and... I made it very hard for myself in order to manage my health and fit in with what ended up being doing IVF and everything else. I used to spread my half-time load over the week so I could get to the major meetings on campus, which was 10 minutes one way, and I could do all the things I needed to do at the hospital, which was 10 minutes the other way, and still have rest and do everything else. Once I had my baby... That went out the window and I was kind of invisible to both employers because I had two days a week childcare and I was doing a lot of work at home and, yeah, I made this ridiculous bed for myself because I'd made myself so visible and so available before even though I was managing it and it really worked for me. It didn't work for me anymore. And at the end of my contract, the dean called me in and said, "Um, it's been great, we want you to come on full time. And as I opened my mouth to say, I can't do that, I want to stay part time, which I was struggling with anyway, she said, it's full time or nothing. Because it was an environment very much where women worked full time, they'd struggled through doing PhDs and having families because it was nursing. So whilst I'd done my PhD first and then gone into it, most of them had done it the other way. And we were encouraging all these young women to come in doing PhDs, starting to do postdocs, and telling them that they could make academic life flexible and family-friendly, and very plainly, it wasn't going to be like that at all. And I very clearly sat there and just said no. And I walked away at the age of what I was 38, 39, walked away from what had been my dream research position, just as I was building up all the contacts and everything else. And, um, and then I walked away from the university because, as it turned out, everyone who was my peer the day before suddenly thought that here I was at a loose end and I could stay home and write their grants for them. And I got out. Yep. Absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what I heard you say today is you've never regretted that decision I never regretted because it. you knew it was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then... Would you like to share with us just a little bit next chapter of that story then as you went looking for jobs?
2: I had an unusual skill set. So I've worked in, over the next 10 years, I worked in some fantastic health-related jobs where I really looked at health through a different lens, so uh, professional regulation and um, private health insurance, Um, and they were really fantastic things to do. I was very clear with all of those jobs that I only wanted part-time and I disclosed my illness in all of them. Yeah, I was confident they wanted me by that stage, but I was very clear about what I couldn't couldn't do. And I purposely picked jobs too where I wasn't going to be pestered out of hours and I wasn't going to have to do a lot of that negotiating the out-of-hours phone calls and things like that. But there was one job I went for. There was a new position that was being put up and um, I could see they were pleased that I was what they wanted and then... It was supposed to be a full time job, and I said I can't do it full time. And this is why, you know, I have a four year old, I have, um, and I have rheumatoid arthritis. And I could see the guy in charge, his face just drop. And he just looked at me and he said, "I need you full time." And I actually turned around, very cheeky, and said to him, "If I had the capacity to do this job full time, I would be running. I would be in your position, running my own research group, not here, working for you." Um, knowing I wasn't going to get the job and his assistant rang me up the next day and she went I'm so sorry you were perfect for this and it was fine I was glad I didn't have it I you just you don't need it
0: and it's the only yeah. job you went for and didn't get as well
2: all the other ones you turned yeah up and it was everything else yeah yeah well one job was interesting they had two jobs going one was full-time and one was part-time and I got called in and interviewed, and then I didn't hear anything, this was at Medibank Private, for about four weeks, and I thought, what's going on? Then I got called back to another interview, and they started just chattering away to me, very excited, and it took me about 10 minutes to work out that they were offering me a job and it was all the good bits for me out of those two jobs created into three days a week. Okay. And I worked there for four years and it I was wonderful. It was really good. But, you know, so... The thing I've always told other women, especially other women academics, when I've spoken to them about career things, is um, don't think you have to stay on that pathway and keep moving forward because we get so siloed and so narrow and so focused. And to step back and go sideways creates, you know, you look on the same problems in the same discipline area through a completely different lens and that breadth is something really quite special mm. and you you won't it's not a straightforward career progression but it's probably the only one i could have had that i could physically manage and enjoy my son and you know keep my marriage in a good place and all of those things but um but it was also really interesting and challenging mm. as as a person to to have that breadth yeah yeah, and you do go deep in it, but it worked for me. And I think the thing was to just not be afraid, to look at things and go, well, I'll explore that. Yeah. And to go and meet people and think, okay, well, yeah, I, I like you. I like what you're doing and I'm, I think I'd like to work with you.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I just want to pop in here with is that, so when we hear these stories and we hear Chris's story and we think, oh, that's just Chris. <laughs> Like we just think, oh, but that doesn't happen for everybody else or whatever, that's just Chris. And then I want to share that I have done the same thing and it really is a sense of I turned up, it was a full-time job and I said I I can do this part-time, I'm only available three days a week. And I think all of the jobs I applied for I then said that to and I think only one said no, but I didn't just apply for part-time jobs. I also applied for full-time jobs and then was strategic around it. I'm now in a situation, so there's two things, and this is the crossover, is I never intended to run my own business and I certainly never intended to run one around chronic illness, okay? That was never my intention and much like Tanya, I sort of fell into it. But what's happening at the moment is that I'm having conversations with corporate HR people and execs at that level. And chronic illness is now, because of COVID and everybody working from home, it has more visibility in the workplace in that people have worked out, people can work from home, and remotely. And they've also started, there's a big shift in visibility around chronic illness. It's going to take a little bit of time, but the shift is on. And just yesterday, I was in a conversation with the head of people and culture for a national organization. And the three questions she asked me were, what sort of conversation should we be having? When should we be having them? And how do we have them without offending anybody? And I have to say for the 15 years that I worked, I like, nobody ever asked me any of those questions. And I had to work out how to navigate that for myself. But that's one of the beauties of where we are now, because it's not just Chris or Tanya or me or any of the other women that we know that we've had on these panels or in the pyjama interviews. The shift is on, And then it really is just a matter of opening strategically to how that's going to work for you. The next thing I really want to explore with both of you is how you find your ground and your power when you feel wobbly and when you're navigating something that is emotionally tricky. And the ways I want to talk about this is both of you have done work with me around the Queen the warrior and the wise woman. And Chris, I'm wondering, we might come to you and then Tanya, we might speak with you as well about this empowerment that you find even in the midst of your own body. Chris, would you like just to share a little bit about you know what you've discovered in the last six months about your own power and
2: where you are operating from? Mm. Yeah, I, um, it's been a fascinating journey and I still feel very much sort of in the middle of it too. A lot of it, I think for me, liking to intellectualize everything has been finding a framework and words, things to put around how I was feeling and to give myself self space to reflect back on where I've been and where I've come to, but also to really find my ground and operate from my maturity much more especially in relationships with um, family. Not so much my partner, but certainly with my son and my mother especially. And that's been fantastic. And all in all, I feel much calmer and able to take on what's happening with COVID, much less angry, which is good. I needed that through what we've done. And I think... We talked a lot about the warrior woman who stands at our boundary, and I think realizing that I, I could step back and just look after me, and not what and give everybody else their space was was really important because I've always been in there sorting everybody else out, mm-hmm. or or running around at their beck and call, which I think is happening to a lot of us that have got teenagers or young adult children and ageing parents as well, you're sort of stuck in the middle. Mm. And um, that's been a really good feeling to be able to really come into myself that way. Yeah, and I feel I feel much more calm and adult in the way I can deal with things. I think there were a lot of decisions that were being made early in the process that were coming from, from a, a much younger me a very a good girl who'd always done the right thing and was the part of me that from my, by my parents was always the one that was acknowledged. Yeah, always. Mm-hmm. That's been my role. as the eldest child of three brothers, the only girl, that good girl has been the part of me that my parents always sort of valued. and it has been such a relief and such a joy to be able to step out of that and just be me. And within, with that, has come quite a shift in my relationship with my mum, which is fantastic. And in a short period
0: of time, in Chris, a short period of time. yeah. One of the things, and I'd, I'd really love you to share, just practically, what has that shift been for you? Like being the good daughter, the eldest daughter, got two mm. people and a lot of expectation on yourself about giving, doing more, even living with chronic illness, that push was really strong in the family. Yeah. Very so, right. what have you done or changed practically
2: to transform that relationship? I've said no more. And I've done things when I've been able to do them, not just when I've been asked to do them, or I've, plan things so um, my mum's just had a knee replacement and we sort of I sort of said to her beforehand I can I can do this and this and this but I I can't do these other things and lo and behold everything got done because my sister-in-laws and my brothers actually stepped up which they normally wouldn't do because I would do it all and And you just jump in first as well you jump yeah, in to well, do it. Yeah, well, it was always expected. I live closest,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know. It, it was there, and it's been really good that sharing around. It's been good for everybody in the family. Actually, yeah, it's been it's it was actually really nice to have everybody participating in a way that they could.
0: And how have you managed any guilt or um, other people's backlash or just those feelings you would have had previously from the good girl who just thought this was not possible to do otherwise?
2: Well, the lack of backlash has been lovely. Yeah. So yeah. there have been no negative consequences at all. Yeah. What a shame I didn't figure it out 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think you just get stuck in these patterns. Yeah. And And finally to break out of some of those. And say, okay, you know, and I I could always do it with work. Um, It was always harder with home, you know. Yeah. I always had good boundaries at work. You know, I refused to have a work phone and they would contact me by email because I could control when I got onto Mm -hmm. the emails and dealt with the work and they knew that they would get things within 48 hours Mm -hmm. but not earlier than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But not to expect anything earlier than that. So deal with it while I'm here or wait. And that was really good. Otherwise, you would have been on the phone all the time.
0: Mm.
2: But yeah, family is another ball game completely. <laughs> yeah. And the intimacy of those relationships and the
0: long history and the way that it gets entrenched. Yeah. So Tanya, I'm curious about you and the shift that you found in your own sense of power over the last five years because living with chronic illness and not being diagnosed and then going through diagnosis and not being validated or not having the support, what has worked for you practically in growing your own confidence over the last five years?
1: I think the biggest shift for me was and it took a while was having the conversations with family members that really mattered so I'm thinking in particular my father because my mother's passed away so my father was oh you know my father's an immigrant so he was the one that came to Australia with the suitcase and built his company and he did that and trying to get through to him that I wasn't okay. So his partner used to come and stay with me. So when I had MRIs or I wasn't coping at all, she'd come and stay with me. So she saw firsthand. And so she was also advocating for me with my father. But it was really, I think, about two or three conversations that I had personally with my dad and just sort of said, look, I, I can't do what you want. You know, it's just not possible. And then when he i think the hardest thing is especially i can imagine with having rheumatoid arthritis it's really difficult until people know i think the other thing with having say central sensitization with no one most people don't understand or they google it and it doesn't even explain it and then chronic fatigue is you know there's so many myths around it is people think it's something that it's not you know it's you know you're depressed or you're this or that that and people but it's not it's a real condition there's changes in the brain and our nervous system so when I could have those conversations around these are my boundaries this is what I'm capable of and then also myself I actually accepted where I was at. I'm like okay because I kept wanting to be something that I wasn't at that time yeah, yeah. and then I said to myself oh I don't I don't know if I'm ever going to get well and I'm this is where I met and that's it and then all that pressure came off me. And then once I accepted me, then things changed. I mean, luckily for me, once I accepted where I was at, I did start to get better um, and probably because a lot of the pressure was taken off, but it also took a long time. So I started putting boundaries in terms of how I was going to live my life. And obviously with family relationships, with anyone that's had or relationships with anyone it's it's not smooth sailing you know and I've certainly made so many mistakes and probably people around me have made sort of we've acted um awkwardly but I think the most thing is just to be kind to yourself because we're only doing what we can at the time that we're in it so we can only do the best that we can at the time that we can and I was driving for a really long time and I kind of realised recently to kind of be this person emotionally and with people and I thought, well I'm not I I'm not really there yet. You know, I still got that bit to work on because with central sensitization, we go into fight and flight. We can overreact, we can get over emotional and we we don't want to do that. So start having boundaries around okay instead of actually sending a text i'll write it and write it and write it and i won't send it or stuff like that yeah just kind of accepting where you and then hopefully around people around you will kind of be quite forgiving as well so yeah
0: there's also a change that happens and i want to be clear about this too so there's parts of us that are good at showing up in certain relationships in certain ways, and we can keep our cool in those. And I'm really aware that when I'm having conversations, that I really want to be transparent with everybody, including every other woman that I interface with in this sort of spoony domain. This is an ongoing process for me, and this relationship about how to manage relationships when my anxiety rises or when my uncertainty rises or what activates that. And I always like to think there are limitless opportunities for me to grow and mature, and I will be presented with them over and over. And that's one of the things I think about this too, Tanya, is I think that we get some grounded skills and then we get the opportunity to strengthen and mature those. And usually the wobble is actually, it looks like the wobble's the terrible thing or the anxiety is the terrible thing. And it is certainly not pleasant and we know when we're off centre, but the wobble is usually an indication that the emotions have been bubbling away for a long period of time and that we're only just now getting to the awareness of this is not okay anymore and this has to stop. And you don't even need to know in that moment what the change is, but knowing that actually it's been going on for a while gives your sense, your nervous system, a little bit of relaxation to ease back because what we can do in those times is say who I should be or who I aspire to be. And then we have that gap between who we aspire to be and who we are. And then, you know, God knows you add social media and everything else into that or family dynamics and that, and it's just drive yourself crazy. So I always have the uh, thought in my mind of whoever is saner in the room at the time <laughs> gets to be the person to lead the conversation. Sometimes that will be me and sometimes that will be somebody else. And if there isn't an adult in the room despite everybody being 50 and over, then we need to recognise that there isn't an adult in the room and the saner person is the one who recognises nobody's in their adult. Like that might be as much as you get in the moment of the conversation. Yeah. So I think that what you've done this was not easy for you Tanya with your dad either like your dad is a fixed person he has some strong views and um, you've managed to navigate that and it's also the case that you know at this point in time that emotional catching up emotionally with where you've been is the next level of work is that right really Tanya for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean physically and in other aspects of my life I feel in a really good place and, yeah, so the next bit is kind of, you know, it took me a really long time to be able to have conversations adequately with people so I actually had to work on that so I've worked on that but it's just kind of managing you know, my emotions cause because I'll get over it upset and you know, so I know that I do that and so that's kind of the next step. But you actually said a really good point there that the adult in the room should talk. But yeah, I mean um, we've had many conversations about things and there's just been so many light bulb moments, you know, so and it's been invaluable. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. not always going to be perfect. I know with you, Chris You had a really good outcome, but for some of us, it's not quite like that. And I know some people with chronic illness will sort of say, oh, walk away from that relationship, but some of us can't. You know, we we still got to negotiate those relationships and just sort of see, well, how can we do this while we're kind of not always okay? So, yeah, it's hard. It's not hard, it's just um, learning new skills.
0: And it's learning how to make it easier. That's what yeah. I'm all. I'm always interested in, the easiest way for this to go for me and the other person, and sometimes it looks like the easiest way mm. is counterintuitive. Actually speaking, when you feel so frightened to speak, actually yeah. can be the easiest thing to do, the easiest way for everybody to get over
2: it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I always made it easy either, and certainly there, I had a couple of years off at different times after I left academia too. So um where I just needed the space and either left a job or took leave of absence for 12 months. Mm. So because I'm also parenting a boy on the autism spectrum. So that was interesting going in the early years too. Mm. Although yeah. he's an amazingly together young man and he's always been so accepting of who he is, much more. So than I was, and confident in himself. Yeah, yeah, he's often the adult in the room in our house.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at least now you know to recognise who's the adult or when you're not in it. I yeah, think that's, that's right. part of the trick.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. But it, yeah, it yeah, I'm happy with how things have gone. But it um, it certainly wasn't easy, and I have certainly made plenty of mistakes on the way. I think you've just, you know, I, as I keep saying to Dan too, you know, you're not you're not going to get it right all the time. But you know, you only get one go. So you just got to start again. And yeah, that's okay. You know, trying and failing's all right. But yeah, you've got to try in your own time and space too. And many, many times I have pushed way too hard. Yeah. Because it was what was expected. And I thought I could fit that mold. Yeah. But I'm very much brought up in that environment of um if you just try a bit harder, you can get there. And it's it's just rubbish with what we live with. Yes, yeah. you know, it's absolutely just rubbish.
0: And you had some of those feelings coming into retirement, but that's now shifted. You're not even looking yeah, for absolutely. the push in this time now
2: or no. the meaning in that way. No. yeah, No, no. I'm actually enjoying, trying to enjoy the opportunity of just everybody's at home, we're all well, we're all safe, we're all together and that's good yeah and yeah things will come and look where I've landed up I'm here (laughs) (laughs) here you are tonight yeah thank you
1: actually I had a similar situation where um during COVID I actually got a full-time job goodness gracious yeah I did so and my business just peaked just before it I got this job so I was really disappointed It took months because I had to go through a federal police check Mm -hmm. and it was working for the government. So I worked there for not long, (laughs) about three (laughs) weeks. (laughs) And it's not kind of the thing that you do in COVID in uncertain times is leave Mm -hmm. your job to pursue your business. But, yeah, I made that decision. And I did have a few friends that are high achievers to say to me, Oh, you know, we're actually disappointed, you didn't stick it out. But now they sort of see the opposite, you know. Mm. So yeah, you just gotta trust that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So yeah, I don't at all regret sort of walking away from that job. And I did feel really terrible because I felt like, oh wow, you know, they've invested so much into me, they've taken me on, I've gone through this massive recruitment process. And But I wrote a really lovely email and they said, there's a job waiting for you at any time if you want one. So I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, at least I've parted on, you know, good terms. Yeah, I did that.
0: Yeah, and those jobs can often come with a lot of pressure that are different to the flexibility, one of the things. I don't think it's about running a business or not running a business or having a job or not having a job. It's about how we navigate that in the times where the uncertainty for us physically or emotionally is very high because we all know how to navigate it when we've got enough certainty or enough capacity, but it's how to navigate it when it's higher. And I think that that is totally possible. And there are particular ways in which you can practically do that. And one of them is exactly what you said, Chris and Tanya. And part of that is your authentic no. Because when people know that your no is honest and real, and it's not something you're trying to say but not really willing to back up with your energy, that no can often bring a shift in what the possibilities are. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Gorgeous. Yes, definitely. So what's some of your experiences, Michelle?
0: Uh, in terms of the nose, so what I have learned to do is work with the push. Um, it turns up in me, it's very strong. My background is leaving home at 17, living on my own for a very long period of time, not being partnered until the last four years, and always providing for myself. So it's actually illness that has taught me how magical things can be, which is bizarre. Because I've been bedbound twice in the last decade for long periods of time, I was employed for each of them, but it worked different ways. The first time with the autoimmune life-threatening illness and it wasn't clear if I was going to live, I was absolutely terrified. I didn't have... um, savings. I'd been sick for a long time, getting sicker and not knowing really that actually this was a problem. I had no sick leave left with my job and I was deeply terrified. And what I did was the thing that we all find hardest to do is there was no choice but to ask for help. I actually had to ask for help and I actually had to say what was happening. And two things made that possible. First was I had a mentor who was much older than me and immediately said, I'm going to put $5,000 in your bank account. And that was mind blowing for me because Mm -hmm. I'd been raised in a family where money was not the thing you did for other people and you were responsible for yourself. And if you were not able to finance yourself, no matter what your circumstance, you had failed and you were a failure as a person. And illness taught me this. It taught me how to ask for help and that all the help was different to what my family thought it was and, in fact, that the story I had from my family was the opposite of what actually was in my life. And so I didn't know that that was actually what normal people did and I didn't know that resource was available. The other thing that happened at that time is I worked out that my superannuation had income protection also something I didn't know the second time I was bedbound, it was trickier I was three days into my dream job oh. three days into it and it hit me out of the blue and I got um vertigo and I couldn't walk and I wasn't able to walk for about nine months and then I was able to walk very wobbly I was able to keep my job, and one of the ways that worked out is that I had a colleague and they valued me from my intellectual capacity was fine. It's just I couldn't walk and my um, typing on screens was, I couldn't read, I couldn't watch TV. It was just I couldn't do anything because of the sensitization was extreme. But I could share my brilliant ideas if I put my phone on speaker and put it away from me. Uh, And all of that has taught me at the times where financially we are taught that we're a burden or financially we feel there is no way possible. Actually, things can be possible and there are ways to be open to that. And the survival instinct and the survival anxiety that comes up often closes us and tells us there is no option. I failed. There's nowhere to go. And in fact, I've seen it happen over and over, Um, and I've seen it happen in Queen of the Underworld. I've seen women come in and think, you know, who has this amount of money sitting around in their bank account to do Queen of the Underworld? And it is magical what happens when instead of we say we can't do something and the finances are gripping us to say how might it be possible And it's just regardless, I just want to share that. It doesn't matter what the thing is, my question now is always how might this be possible, not how do I work out how to do the thing that everybody else wants me to do. So that's how I've worked that out, Tanya. And thank you for asking. And it's a practice and I work with, you know, the fear as she comes up and I work with the trust of knowing that I've always got it I'm always going to be able to access it. There's always going to be intuition. There's always going to be insight. There's always going to be information. My job is to work out how to hold myself open for that information to come. You do not have to live a life where your dreams, your love, your career, anything that is in your heart is stymied and never to be experienced because you are living with chronic illness. That is a story we are told about chronic illness. So we're told when we're chronically unwell that it's over, your dreams are over, the possibilities are over, there is nowhere for you to go and what you want has to be second third, fourth, fifth or everything else and that is not the case and the reason I want to share that with you is because it's fundamentally untrue for the first thing. It's not my experience and it's not your experience once you start to look at how deep your power is and the first part of that is shifting the story of illness that you've inherited into the story that is honestly, truthfully, and magnificently yours. The second thing about that is that we are taught we need to push, we need to accommodate everybody, we need to be the good girl, or if we have an explosive tantrum, it's over, and we're on just this consistent emotional wobble while living with chronic illness. One of the things I know is that you are an intelligent, creative, talented woman. You wouldn't be in connection with me if you weren't. You have worked out a thousand things before we met. You've worked out how to have jobs. You've worked out how to study. You've worked out how to be creative. You know how to work things out. And what I am sharing with you in Queen of the Underworld is how to find a way through and work it out with chronic illness. Chris or Tanya, if there's anything you want to extra share on that process, Chris?
2: I think for me... Being in the space with the other women in the group has been wonderful too, because you're with a group of women that get it. <laughs> yeah. And that we're on the same journey, even though our experiences have been very different. And what we want out of it is often different too. Um, it's a wonderful community. Yeah. And um, it's been very, very valuable.
0: And we've got women who from 26, we've got two women who are mm-hmm. actually bedbound doing the course. And it sounds crazy to say, yeah. but they are flourishing. In, like we have one beautiful woman with yeah, us. Yeah, remarkable she, women. These women are the people who you would think you would be told, well, you're bed bound, there's nothing you yeah. can do to change your yeah.
2: experience. No, just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful women that I would never have been in contact with otherwise.
0: Can you say anything else you want to share? before we close out about your business
1: actually one thing i wanted to share i have a facebook page called my central sensitization journey so michelle you want might want to share that and it's purely when i started doing my treatment i just put posted this is what i have this is what i've tried and here it is you know go and give it a go and i did want to add a few things so we've spoken about this quite a fair bit and i have with other friends of mine that i'm in close contact with we found for us there were quite a few things that really made a really big difference in our recovery you know obviously diet movement and a really important part was the emotional how you actually emotionally dealt with what was going on for you and we found it was really imperative
0: gorgeous Thank you so much, Chris and Tanya, for joining us for the conversation. This conversation was magical and I'm so thrilled that we were able to bring you more conversations, more connections, more power with women, magnificent women, living with chronic illness. As I mentioned during the podcast, we are now open for the eight-month immersion of Queen of the Underworld. You can book a consultation call with me. It's completely complimentary. We can talk about anything that's important to you. We offer one uh, subsidized scholarship for every course that we do, and I've worked with lots of women about how to get the financial support you need in order for you to do the program that works for you. All of the details are at the webpage michelleirving.com.au and you can follow me on Instagram at michelleirvingofficial. You can follow Tanya from tonight's episode at Koki Eco Shop on Instagram and the beautiful Chris Beanland is a private citizen and so you'll find her connection in our Pajama Interviews Facebook group which is totally free and you're also welcome and deeply invited to share. I look forward to sharing more with you next week. Thank you so much and I wish you the deepest love, meaningful work and your own sense of deep personal power while living with chronic illness.